Thank you, Mike, for taking care of everything while I was away. Um, I apologize for being a little bit late today, as, uh, as most of you probably already know. We had a contract vote today for Ward. I have no idea what the results are, <laughs> so I'll find out after the service. Um, but it's interesting, and we'll see how things go. All right, well, enough of that. Let's get on to the fun and more important things in my mind, the scriptures. Um, let's go to Genesis chapter 29. If you have your Bibles, please open them to there. If you do not have your Bibles, it will be behind me on the screen. And if you notice, we now have a spring-themed PowerPoint because it's spring now. feels a bit, I guess it was kind of snowing a bit when I got here, but oh well. <laughs> Alrighty, so previously in Genesis, what we've seen is um, the deception of Laban on Jacob. Um, and basically, Jacob said, hey, I'll work for you for seven years if you will give me um, Rachel to be my wife. And Laban said, sure. Seven years went by. Jacob had said, okay, it's been seven years. Let me marry your daughter. And it turned out that Laban tricked uh, Jacob into marrying Leah, his older daughter, instead. Um, and from that, we then learned that, okay, he then was able to marry Rachel, but he, um, once he married her, he still had to work another seven years. So that's kind of where we're at now. And now we're going to see kind of, for the most part, what happens in that seven years. A lot of this stuff happens within that seven years. A lot more happens after we'll see um, after these. But really we're going to be focusing on now is uh, the children, basically, that happen from these, from these relationships. So ending on 29, actually, we're going to be 31 through 35. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son, and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son, and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son, and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. So at this juncture in Genesis, we learn of what happened during the seven years after the marriages to Leah and Rachel, Leah and Rachel, I'm going to keep doing that. Um, it begins with God seeing Leah. When his expression, when this expression is used, it usually leads to God acting in some way. Um, indeed, in seeing how Leah was hated, he acts on her behalf. It is interesting how Leah is described as being hated, which is in contrast with Rachel, who was so loved by Jacob. In any case, God being merciful and gracious opens Leah's womb and in response to how she is not loved. Um, we also see immediately that Rachel is barren. Thus, with Leah's womb open, she conceives and bears a son. She names him Reuben, which has its roots with the word see, um, which makes sense since she also says that the Lord has looked upon my affliction. Because she is unloved, she hopes Reuben's birth will cause her to be loved by Jacob. Then we learn she bore another son. We learn immediately that the birth of Reuben did not cause Jacob to love her anymore, as she says, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me the son also. Thus she names her new son Simeon, which again, it, it closely goes with hearing. So God heard her, so she names Simeon in that manner. Despite bearing two sons, Jacob's affections have not changed. Um, 
Thus, when she bears another son, she believes that Jacob's affections will finally be toward her, as she says, now my husband will be attached to me. Thus, she names her third son Levi, which, as you would guess, does reflect the word attached. She conceives for the fourth time, though. We notice how the focus isn't on Jacob loving her anymore. It is, is it possible that she has turned aside her hope um, in his affections toward her and is now satisfied with the children she has been blessed with? Uh, it would seem so, as she says, this time I will simply praise, praise the Lord or I will praise the Lord, and then names him Judah, which means praise. Um, after the birth of Judah, we then learn that her womb is closed, so she ceases to bear children. Um, All right, so now we're going to find, okay, what does Rachel do? So beginning in chapter 30. When Rachel saw that she bore children, or Jacob, no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So, he get, so she gave him her servant Bilhah, Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. This Rachel, then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. All right. So despite the affections Jacob has for Rachel over Leah, in the end... Rachel wants more and becomes jealous of her sister. Indeed, we find her response to yell at Jacob, to give me children or I shall die. In other words, she's essentially blaming um, Jacob for her barrenness. Jacob logically responds that he is not God. It is not that Jacob who enables her to bear children or not, it's a gift from God. Despite this, she still tries human means in order to win the day. Just like Sarah had done with Hagar in the Abrahamic story, Rachel tries to take things into her own hands by offering her servant Bilhah. The goal is for her to bear children on Rachel's behalf, which was a custom in the ancient Near East for those women who were barren. And we kind of talked about that previously with Sarah. Ultimately, Jacob simply accepts, and through that union, she bears a son. Rachel's response to this is, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. To be judged here can also have the nuance of vindication, um, thus the name Dan, which relates to the concept. Not only is Dan born through Bilhah, we also learn that she conceives again and bears another son for Jacob. Rachel again is the one who responds with, with mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. In her mind, her sister may have had children, but she has Jacob's children's and affections. Um, ultimately, she names him Naphtali in response. And this is the one name where people don't really know what Naphtali means. So it's possible it has to do with, with um, wrestlings and things like that. Um, unfortunately, it's been lost. Still, verses 9 through 13. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come, so she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. 
Leah will not be outdone by her sister. While Rachel needs Bilhah in order to have children, Leah has already had them. And not only that, she can also give her servant Zilpah um, and attempt the same thing. Thus she gives Zilpah to Jacob as a wife. Zilpah then bears the first son, and Leah's response is simply that God has good fortune has come upon him and names him Gad. Um, then Zilpah bores uh, Zilpah again, Jacob another son, to which Leah responds is happiness, the name of child Asher. So it's just, it's all already messed up. <laughs> all right, but here we go, verses 14 through 17 and 18. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went out and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, it is a small matter that you have taken away my husband. Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. And Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. Mike always says, by the way, Mike, our Mike, if you ever want to read a really dramatic thing, you know, read the Bible. Um, dysfunctional. dysfunctional families, let me tell you. All right, so, so far in this story has been somewhat strange and dark. Let's be real. Um, at this point, it comes to its strangest and, and, and most people's minds darkest point. We learn that Reuben finds some mandrakes for his mother. And at this point, Rachel sees the mandrakes and asks for them. Leah's response is both bitter and harsh. Um, Rachel, the younger sister, has taken the affections of Jacob, and because of this, Jacob tends to stay with Rachel rather than Leah. As such, why should Rachel also have the mandrakes given to her by her son Reuben? The response from Rachel is, in exchange for the mandrakes, Jacob will sleep with Leah. For one, it shows us just how much Jacob favors Rachel, as Leah is willing to trade for just one night with her husband. Likewise, it might show how mandrakes are viewed in antiquity um, for producing arousal and perhaps helping with conception in their minds. As such, the desire for Rachel to have them may recognize this uh, potential reality in ancient times that mandrakes were not only an aphrodisiac, but also helped with, um, with birth, basically, um, conception. You know, it's kind of like an old wives' tale kind of a thing. Thus, when Jacob returned that evening, Leah told him that he had been traded away that night for the mandrakes. As such, he must sleep with her. Basically, he's been hired for some conjugal rights. This then leads to Leah's fifth son. We notice the narrator of the story ascribes this to God as it is God who hears Leah. She assumes the reason for it is because of giving Zilpah to Jacob and as such she is blessed. Whether her understanding is correct does not seem to be the case since as the verse previous, God is the one who grants via his grace. In the end, she names her new son though Issachar. I know she's not here, but we're going to... Oh no, she is. Just kidding. All right, so verses 19 through 21. No. You know, that's great. Thank you, Jess. Um, and Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. All right, so with these few verses, we learn that Leah bears Jacob the sixth son. 
she again recognizes God's blessing on her, focusing on the fact that Jacob will honor her because of how many sons she has borne him. She has uh, names her final son Zebulun. And then with the final note, we find out that she also has a daughter, Dinah. Um, as is often the case, when the text tells us a name in this way, the way it does, uh, especially with women, it usually leads to future events surrounding them. So Rachel, it happened with, um, and it happened also with Rebecca, and now it's happening with Dinah. We're going to learn something else that happens to her as well. All right, so the final few verses. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Before the close of Jacob's offspring, we learn that God remembered Rachel. This concept is similar to Noah when he was on the ark, and God remembered Noah. Still, God opens up Rachel's womb. Though we have not seen her faith open or obvious, really, at all, it seems throughout this time she has been in prayer and requesting this from God. This leads her to conceiving and bearing a son, with her response being, God has taken away my reproach. In ancient times, the pressure from society on women to have children was very high, which reflects a lot of what she responds with. She then names her son Joseph with the hope that God would add to her another son. Um, Yet we notice that it is Lord rather than the generic God, El. As such, it reminds us the intimate relationship between God and his people that she would use the covenant name Yahweh um, in this situation. All right. So the main point of these verses are to describe the growing family via Leah, Bilhah, Zilpah, and Rachel. From these, so far, come 11 of the 12 sons of Jacob, who will ultimately become the 12 tribes of Israel. Despite the jealousness of the sisters toward one another and their scheming, it is ultimately God's grace that outshines the human manipulations found in these relationships. All right. (laughs) Application points. (laughs) The first one. Descriptive versus prescriptive. So before we get too far, I did want to focus on something that we haven't talked a great deal about in Genesis. And what I mean is, has anyone ever wondered about the story we read today? Have any of you ever thought, wow, that doesn't sound right or good at all? How can Leah and Rachel offer their servants to Jacob, and how can Jacob just accept? How can all of this stuff happen? At this point, we need to take a breath. Anyone who has ever read from the scriptures will come across things which seem strange to those who read it. We wonder how they could make such immoral choices, for example. So does this mean that their behavior is right and good or justified? After all, isn't it the scripture meant to show us the way we should go? So should we read the story and think, oh, we should do that too? Well, the answer to all this is yes and no. And from this point um, comes the point. That is, there are things within the scriptures which we would call descriptive, and those which we would call prescriptive. Um, So let's go over some of these so it makes sense. Today we have a story which we would call descriptive. It is describing something that happened. By being descriptive, it isn't telling us that those in the story should be emulated or even not emulated. Instead, it is simply telling us a story. Now contrast this with what is prescriptive. In this, the scriptures prescribe something to us. The law is a good example of something which is prescriptive. The Ten Commandments is prescriptive. Jesus, when he says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, it's prescriptive. 
In these verses, we are prescribed something. That is, prescribed what to do, how to live. So when we come upon certain stories, they are merely describing the events that took place. Sometimes stories we find in the scriptures are good. And they show us individuals to emulate. Individuals we should like say, yes, that's good. I want to be like that. Many, many, many times, though, the exact opposite is true. Where they tell us evil that exists, and we see the evil in it. And we should not emulate them. How do we know when to emulate and when not to emulate? Well, let's consider this story. From this story, we aren't told to go live polygamous lifestyles or that polygamous relationships are acceptable. Indeed, the way the relationships quickly take advantage of situation and the individuals take advantage of each other shows us that such relationships quickly become problematic. Within the story itself, we find issues. But we can go beyond the story to other places in Scripture. We can remember how in the beginning, God made them male and female, and they became husband and wife. The two became one flesh. From the beginning, the Bible has considered one husband and one wife to be the standard. Thus, we can use the scripture themselves to interpret what is good about this story and what is bad, what we should emulate, and what we should be warned against doing ourselves. From Genesis 1-3, through we can see, ah yes, this is where they made a major mistake. This then leads to the final point of this, which is that when you read the scriptures, remember that all because something is described, it doesn't mean it is endorsed or encouraged, or prescribed behavior. The scriptures are filled with broken people who make both good and bad choices, much like each of us. Thus, it is our responsibility to learn from the stories themselves, and in the light of the rest of the scripture, and in doing this, we can glean what we should be encouraging with one another, and what we should also discourage. So, that leads to the second point, which is, you know, learning from stories. So now that we've discussed that, there are a number of things to learn from this story as well. Again, while descriptions or stories are not always meant to be followed, that doesn't mean that we can't learn from them. Uh, Indeed, stories are a great way for us to learn many things. So it is the case with this particular story as well. In particular, there are four things which we can learn a great deal. Actually, I started with two, and then I went to three, and then I went to four, and it might be ten. We'll find out. I don't remember now. The first is the way the text describes the coming of the children in the family. Notice, it isn't merely a biological event in which two individuals create a third person. It is far more than that in that God is the one who grants the blessing of children in people's lives. Indeed, children are never considered an accident, nor are they ever considered anything other than a blessing from God Almighty in the scriptures. Unfortunately, uh, in our modern culture, People in general um, tend to not view children this way. Indeed, let alone children and offspring, we are considered nothing more than cogs in a machine. As such, we have no intrinsic worth. We are little more than numbers to the world around us, tallies, statistics, machines to be used and discarded when we're finished. It should be of no surprise, then, that so many states recently have tried to pass even more, let's say, open abortion laws than ever before. In New York, for example, it basically allows for children to be terminated from the womb up until they exit said womb. Indeed, some believe it isn't that harsh, but the language itself testifies to this. It isn't just those who are having physical medical issues, but instead any kind of issues, that's what the text says. 
The law is purposefully vague because it isn't concerned about the unborn because they have no worth despite their humanity. Thus, these laws are passed because they presuppose that they are not humans, but are just a blob of tissue, a creation of mere genetic chance, nothing more. How much of a contrast is this with what we find in the scriptures today? Rachel says, give me a child. Jacob says, am I God? The narrator who says, God opened her womb, and God remembered her, and God heard her, and the women who praise God for the children. I think we could all learn from this text to not take for granted our children, whether they are our biological children or our spiritual children in the church, that we can thank God for all of them, that each of us can rejoice in every child born and conceived and be thankful and contribute to their well-being by teaching them about God, his gospel, his world, his great love for them through Jesus, to rejoice over every child just as they did. Now, this also leads to a second point, which can be unrelated, I guess. Um, And that is how covetousness is a dangerous and dark thing. Notice throughout the text, there are jealous sisters coveting over something the other sister has. Leah, she covets the love of Jacob, which is given to Rachel. Rachel, she covets the children, which Leah continues to be blessed with. When we covet each other's blessings... What does that really lead to? It leads to individuals who are bitter, who are angry, and will scheme and manipulate to get what they want, what they covet. It is very interesting to witness it as we read it, especially since each coveted what the other had. Instead of being satisfied with the blessings that they had been given themselves, they were focusing on what they wanted to get. We need to be incredibly cautious when it comes to coveting and to not become coveters. The depth of the problem isn't even necessarily with our affections placed on the object object which we covet, but in our inability to be thankful to God who gives the blessings to begin with. It shows our affections to be misplaced when we focus so much on each other's blessings instead of the God who gives by his grace. Now that said, that doesn't mean that we can't have desires. But it is one thing to have a desire over something, over a blessing, and coveting. I could desire, and I do, (laughs) I do desire, um, to have all my school debts paid off for me in some way in which those paying it off aren't really even affected. I'm looking at Bill Gates there. (laughs) Yet I could hear about an individual's school debts being paid off because of someone being generous, and instead of rejoicing with them, I could say in my heart, why can't that be me? Why? So that is it. It's okay to have desires for things, but not all right to covet after them. I do not necessarily believe that Rachel would have been wrong to desire to have children. I think she was okay with having that desire. I do think she was wrong in her covetousness and her willingness to do anything to get those children. Now, the third point stems from the last two in a way, and that all because you have a desire, it doesn't mean you should do whatever it takes to get that desire. Even if what you desire is a good thing, It doesn't mean you should attempt to do bad in order to attain the good. In our own time, or at least our own culture, we usually do not have a problem with women giving their servants to their husbands in order to have a baby. But we do have individuals who want want things or want to do things. They can't afford it, and so let's say they'll go into debt. Or individuals who practice immoral and unethical business practices in order to attain higher profits. 
Is it wrong to desire things in this life? Again, no. It isn't wrong to desire your business to be profitable. It isn't wrong to desire to go to college or to get something you can't right now afford. Yet it's when we do unwise things or evil things in order to get our desires that leads to serious problems and may very well show where our affections truly are. This is a nice segue then into the fourth point. One which I suspect we all forget when we read a biblical story. That is, we are all very much so leaning on the grace of God. For the truth of it, is that we are not dependent upon our abilities, but always on God's blessings. This text reminds us of this. Despite basically everyone's failure in this story, God still blesses them by his grace. This story reminds us that it isn't about your perfections that blessings come. It isn't about by how good you are, but it is by God's grace and his will. A story such as this might also cause us to consider why he would do some things for some, but not for others. As such, only because we know the rest of the story do we know what God's will was for these 12 children, 12 tribes of Israel to come from these children. That through them would come his very own son, Jesus Christ, who would redeem the world for his glory. In other words, the reason why God may bless some rather than others isn't necessarily because some are better and others are worse. Many times it simply has to do with God knowing far more than we could possibly know. And he knows what is best for all of us, even when we think we know what is best. So it is, the rain falls on the just and the unjust, for a reason beyond our knowing. We do not know what will happen in the faithful family today and the unfaithful family tomorrow. All we can be sure of is to find our dependence not on ourselves, but on God's grace. To desire to honor him, and to love him with all of who we are, and to seek obedience to him, not because he is a taskmaster, but because we are loved by him so greatly through his son Jesus. In reading a story like this, then, do not forget these valuable points. God is the one who is sovereign over all of the universe, and as such, his ways are greater than our ways. We can trust him and we can rejoice in what he does in the world and what he does for us and for others. While we may not understand all the reasons for certain things in this moment, we can trust that God does have reasons for both allowing what occurs around us and for doing what he does in the world. Not only this, but we can also know that these reasons are not for evil, but are ultimately for good. I think the final thing to consider, this is the fifth point, is this. We are all part of an interesting narrative called my life. Each of us is part of our own unique individual stories. If we read stories of the ancients, let us learn to better ourselves upon reading of their mistakes and not make the same mistakes in our own narratives. Our narratives are not our own because no person is an island. (laughs) which is what we read about today from John Donne. There will be those around you and generations after you who may very well tell your stories. The question is, what kind of story will they tell? Will they tell the story of the time that you married four women? Will they tell the story of the time you were jealous over your sister? Will they tell the time when you failed? Or will they tell the story of your faithfulness to God?
Will they tell the story of how God lifted you out of darkness and into the light, and how you rejoiced? Will they tell the story of how you desire to walk with your God? As you live, a story is being written. Every breath you breathe, every thought you have, every action you take, is another chapter in the narrative of your life. Our responsibility, then, for each and every one of us, is to have good stories with all the pain, the sorrow, the struggles, the grace, the mercy, and the love. As such, the best life stories are the ones which point us back to the Creator, the author of life and faith himself. In all of this, then, seek to be individuals who desire to glorify God with all of who you are. Be strong and courageous in a world which thinks so little of you. Live your life with the intentions of telling a story which glorifies God. Rejoice in all of his works, both big and small, knowing that his grace is sufficient for each of us forever. I don't have my microphone, so I have to stand here. I can, you, want me to, you want me to do that? Should I get the mic? We'll get the mic. I need to walk around. I'm tense. It's been a busy week. I didn't, uh, I didn't get a chance to apologize for this sermon. If it was bad, I apologize. It's been a crazy week. <laughs> anyway, um, but this also, this leads us to the gospel of Jesus in, in a number of ways. I mean, we can see origins here. For example, the 11 of the 12 tribes of Israel are being told right here and now and how from that comes Jesus himself. Um, you know, what's your origin story? Where did you come from? What's your lineage? What's your genealogy? Who's coming after you? Maybe they'll be kings and queens. Maybe they'll be wicked. Um, still, all origin stories have an origin, and that is God himself. And it's because God creates us. He has created us in, as unique individuals in his image. And so all persons, all human individuals have intrinsic worth and value, sanctity and dignity to life. But we also see a lot about the fall here. You know, we see how relationships can just get damaged when we're jealous over each other and how that can lead us to just doing awful things, to coveting. Sin is a very real symptom that has real effects in this world. And when we follow after sin and when we desire to be enticed by that sinful nature within us, it causes things to happen which are just plain bad. And that's the reality of the fall, is that we deserve judgment because we can sometimes, and we very often and most of the time, desire to do bad things. And we deserve judgment for evil that we do. But you know what? This story also reminds us something about grace, because... How many of you have sinned at least once? So you've all deserved judgment. Congratulations, you sinners. I raised my hand, so I'm talking to myself too. So you guys don't deserve any blessings, I guess. Neither do I. But God still blesses us. Just like he blessed those in the story today who did not deserve a single blessing that they got. How interesting. How poetic for redemption and grace of that redemption. And that the 
baseline of redemption is the fact that God is a gracious God who looks at us in our sin, who looks at us in our inabilities and our failures and says, I'm still going to love you and I'm going to redeem you. And how he can even redeem this situation with these children. It's kind of amazing if you think about how great our God is. If you really consider how wonderful he is. That this redemption would come on a people like us who are so quick to sin and so quick to go against his will. But again, this story reminds us of the redemption of God. That he can redeem even these darker stories and bring about something good. Because that's your life. Your life is one in which God has taken something pretty bad and dark and turned it into light. I've, I've said before, it rivals. Redemption, it rivals the creation of the universe. Because with the creation of the universe, God had nothing to work with. <laughs> he just did. I mean, with us, he takes something which is generally evil and makes it good. It's great news. And where does this this all lead? It leads to glorification. It leads to, if we are in Christ, if we place our faith in what, not in what we do and our abilities and our perfections and how good we are and we don't make a tally sheet, but instead if we place our faith in Jesus and in what he has done, we find the infinite glory of our Father in heaven and the great love that he has for us without even a veil to stop it from coming to us. Yeah, for those who don't turn in faith, there is judgment. We can't deny that. For those who continue to live in sin without any repentance and who continue to think that they can get by on their own without God's grace, there's judgment. But for the humble, and for those who recognize their sin, and it's been revealed to them how dark it is, should they turn towards Christ? There's life everlasting and no judgment but love. In this story, I'm always reminded of myself every time I read a Genesis story. And they're all pretty, pretty awful. But that's a good thing, I think. I think it's a good thing to remember the grace of God. It's a good thing to remember his love and his mercy. And something that we can cling to day in and day out. So... Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much because you are a great and truly wonderful God. You are a God who blesses us. You are a God who is with us, who is for us. And you have shown that in the most amazing of ways through your son, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins so that we could no longer just be image bearers, but that we could be also your children. And so, Lord, we ask that we would ever cling more and more to your grace, that we would desire nothing but your grace, and to be satisfied not in the blessings, but in you. And to recognize that you are truly wonderful in all of your ways. Please open up all of our hearts and our minds to remember this. And continue, Lord, to bless us. We thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing.